Hi, I'm Dalton. And I'm Robin. And welcome to the second episode of Season 8 of the Fly on the Wall podcast. We had a great conversation with our guest, former Representative Mia Love today, and we're so excited to share her thoughts with you. Before we introduce this week's guest and discuss all about elections, we'd like to make sure our listeners have the resources to participate in our democracy. GU Votes is a student-run initiative working to grant easy access to voting resources. They have registration and ballot request info on their site, and getting there is easy as Googling GU Votes and clicking on the first result. Also, remember to follow us on social media. We are at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and be sure to send any messages to flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. Our guest this week is Mia Love, a former two-term U.S. representative of the 4th Congressional District of Utah, where she was the first Black Republican woman elected to Congress. Prior to her time in Congress, Representative Love served on the city council and was elected mayor in her hometown of Saratoga Springs, Utah. She is currently a CNN correspondent and a fellow with our very own Georgetown Institute of Politics and Public Service, and we're so excited to share her thoughts with you. Representative Love, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this week. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. I'm excited to be a fellow at Georgetown um, GU Politics. Uh, It's been incredibly enlightening, and we get started next week. Um, I'm both nervous and excited and really optimistic about how this virtual connection is going to work. I I think that there's some opportunities here that we get to um, discover. That's awesome. So some of our listeners might not know about your background. So our first question is just, how did you get started in politics? Oh, gosh. All right. So, um, you know, there, Winston Churchill always talks about this. Uh, well, he, he talked about this tap on the shoulder. And one of my favorite quotes is um, being willing, being prepared and ready for that tap on the shoulder. And um, what a tragedy it would be if, if you weren't if you weren't prepared to, to answer that tap on the shoulder. And, um, you know, my dad kind of said something like that, too. He said, when I, when I, when he sent me to college, he said, Mia, your mother and I have done everything we could to get you here. Um, we have asked for nothing. And the only thing we ask you is that you don't be a burden to society. You give back because this country has given us so much. And, um, anyway, um, he just said, make sure you're in a position to give back. And so I always kind of listened to that. It didn't go in one ear out the other. And all of the stories he has told me, um, that's what got me into politics is it was one moment where there were so many people that were asking me to do something. And then I jumped in as a city council meeting because of what my dad said. And then as the mayor, it's the same thing. All of a sudden, it's don't be a burden to society, um, give back. And then again, as a member of Congress, don't be a burden to society. Give back. It's always that voice in my head. So, to follow up on that, is there anything that you miss about being in local government, and would you ever want to go back? Oh, of course. There's uh, there's a lot that I miss about being in local government. Um, one is things get done fairly quickly. When you're on the city council meeting, something has to be done. My only obstacle was getting it on the agenda. And once I got it on the agenda, I knew it would be discussed, and we can actually handle it that day, um, the next Tuesday. So we get it on the agenda and we discuss it and we handle it. Um, the other thing is, um, that 
as a mayor, if I wanted something on the agenda, I can just put it in. Or if I wanted the council to discuss something, I didn't have, I was that hurdle. So I didn't have to worry about that any longer. And I would just put it on the agenda. If something needed to be fixed, I'd put it on the agenda and say, okay, you guys discuss this. And, um, and it was really easy. Whereas Washington, it, that's, you know, you have a bill, you have to go and get as many people to support it. Most of the time you're walking on the floor, having people sign um, their support on the bill, then you get it to committee and then you've got to get your chairman to buy in on it before it gets on that agenda. And then you have to get through that vote and then you have to get to the floor and then that has to go to the Senate and then that has to go to the White House. So it's incredibly difficult to get a bill through. Um, I thank goodness was able to get a financial bill through in 21 HR 2155 that was signed into law and it was a substantive bill. Um, most people, when they get bills through, it's usually renaming a post office or a, or a interstate or a, you know, um, I was able to actually get a substantive bill, but that was one bill that was signed into law. Um, actually I have two bills in the four years that I was there. And if you compare it to local, I mean, that's, you're talking about 2040, you know, 50 bills. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing with us about your local career. So now moving into your career in congressional politics, can you walk us through what you were thinking on Election Day in 2014 when you were first elected? Um, when I was first elected? Well, I went through a campaign that was really difficult before um, uh, against a sitting uh, member of Congress who was a Democrat, um, Matheson, and um Jim Matheson, and he had been there for 12 years, and he had a father, Scott Matheson, who is a beloved former governor in the state of Utah, and we lost that by 624, 728 votes, um, and so I remember McCain called me, John McCain um, called me and said, hey, I just want you to know, well, he asked me what I was doing first, and I was like, I'm going to learn how to oil paint. He's like, oh, that's nice. Boo-hoo. Put it down. He said that this was an investment. This wasn't just a one-time deal. Get back up and you've got two years to make it work. And I campaigned for two years. Um, and Matheson retired and I was able to raise money at that time because I had more of a name. Um, I was able to get a lot of um, help. I actually was pretty, got, because it was such a national race, got um, a lot of name recon recon recognition statewide. And it was just surreal. When I, when they finally called the race, um, I was, that night, they were still back and forth. And I, I just, it, it's hard to remember. I just remember my mom and my dad being there. And they were sick to their stomachs at first. And then all of a sudden it was just relief. It was just all of the hard work was done. And I remember my campaign manager said, well, congratulations, Congresswoman. And I, and that's, I think that's when it clicked that that was going to be, that there was nothing else that that was. And then I got this dread right after that. Okay. Now the work really begins, right? If, if I thought a campaign was a lot of work, being a member is even more. So that was really surreal for me. And I, I felt relief, but right after felt an immense amount of responsibility. 
Yeah, that's an incredible story. And looking back at your career in the House, if there was something you knew now that you wish you could tell your past self when you got elected to Congress, what would it be? If I could tell my past self when I got elected, um, you know, I think I think that this is something that a lot of women, maybe, I, in my experiences and the friends that I have as members of Congress, we don't really take credit for a lot of the things that we do. I'll give you an example. Stop Act was enacted into law. That is stop taxpayer obligation to perpetrators of sexual harassment. If you remember um, the. Um, administrative committee was trying to work through this fund that was out there that members of Congress would use to make sexual allegations go away. And I thought that was a problem for two reasons and on both sides. First, it wasn't, it didn't allow members of Congress to take responsibility, personal responsibility for their personal decisions and behaviors. And I didn't want them to be able to just get away with whatever. And it also felt like as a member of Congress, if you didn't do anything wrong, that you would want to have your day. You would, it, it protected due process. So if you wanted, I wanted them to go in and be able to debate and, and talk about what happened and stick up for themselves. And I didn't want somebody to just be paid off. And I didn't also didn't want for people to take advantage of a fund that was out there. So it, on so many ends, I thought that taxpayers having to pay for bad behaviors of members of Congress was wrong in, on so many levels. Um, so I actually enacted that bill, the STOP Act, and I went on to the next. And a lot of people don't know that that was a bill that was out there. First of all, it, it shouldn't have been there. That fund shouldn't have been there to begin with. But to be able to get that through and um, stop people like Blake Farenthal and some other people from being able to use those funds, that, that was a major uh, um, accomplishment. But it was more about getting it done than it was about taking credit for it. And unfortunately, um, I would tell myself to, you know what, make that known. Take credit for some of these things because um, people need to know that you're actually, you're, you're doing something. And it's just inherently counterintuitive counter for me. If I see something that needs to be done, I just did it and moved on to the next thing. You know, when my kid spills milk, I don't sit there and say, hey, by the way, I cleaned it up. Look how great it looks. It's, I just felt like it was my responsibility and move on to the next thing. So I would tell, my, I would tell myself back then to take a moment, take accountability, but also take the credit for getting something done because um, it's important for people to know what you've actually accomplished. Yeah, that's amazing advice. Um, so we're wondering, did you ever make any surprising friendships during your time in Congress, either across the aisle or within your own party? Yeah. So um, actually, a lot of people told me not to be, uh, not to go into the Congressional Black Caucus, that it was going to be really uncomfortable. And, you know, these are people who um, the first time I went in, actually, oh, uh, President Barack Obama was the president for uh, two years. And then um, President Trump got elected two years after that. But um, I remember going in and it was really uncomfortable. There was one point where we had a meeting at the White House 
and I had to be invited. I don't know if they wanted to invite me, but I was part of the Congressional Black Caucus, so I had to be invited. And I went and there was a table um, that was just had names all over it. And they had President Barack Obama and then the Vice President Joe Biden. And people came in and sat down and I was looking for my name and I couldn't find it anywhere. And all of a sudden on a chair next to the bathroom in the back of the room was a name tag for me. And I was just, I don't know what got into me, but I was like, I don't think so. Everybody got in, they sat down, they took their seats. And I noticed that there was a seat open at the table. I grabbed my tag and I said, excuse me, can you scooch in for a second to the vice president? I was like, can you scooch in a little bit? And he looked at me and he moved in. And I think that he was kind of surprised that I actually, I don't know why I used the word scooch. Can you scooch in a little bit? But then I took, I put my tag in and I said, I'm not going to be sitting at the bathroom. I'm going to be sitting at the table. I am a member of Congress and I deserve a spot just like everybody else. Um, and I sat down. Um, I'm not sure if that helped me build relationships, but I think at that point they knew that I wasn't going to be one to walk all over. Um, but from then I really, um, formed a really good friendship with, first of all, Marsha Fudge, um, from Ohio. She became my big sister. And I can tell you that I have a genuine love for her. Um, she was, she was my diva that no one would mess with. I mean, she, if somebody gave me a hard time, she would, she would straighten it out. And she also protected me on the floor. If there was a vote, she looked at me, she's like, you don't need to vote for this. This is, this is not something you need to. And then there was a, there were times where she's like, looks at me and she's like, uh, you need to change your vote on this. You need to support this. And I, I got to the point where I knew that when she was giving me advice, it was really for me. Um, Cedric Richmond, I became really good friends with him. And um, he explained to me why he was a Democrat and why I was a Republican. And um, it was really quite, we, I, I built a friendship there that it was a good um, relationship. And they had a voice in the Republican conference. And I felt like I had a voice and some protection in the Democrat party. And I can say this, not one person in the Congressional Black Caucus campaigned against me, not one. They asked over and over and over again, and they had a path that they're like, no, she's part of our caucus. Um, we're not gonna campaign against her. And they saw me as one of them. And I'll never forget that. That was probably the best experience of being a member of Congress. Yeah, those are some incredible stories that you've shared about your time in Congress. And so currently the 116th Congress has elected the most women so far in American history. What do you think this indicates about the direction of women in U.S. politics? Well, um, I mean, that's good and bad in some ways. And let me explain this. Um, when I first met uh, Michelle Obama, now I'd, I'd met, I had met the president several times, um, the former president several times. Um, and there was one point where he pretended, and I know he pretended, that he didn't know who I was. He's like, oh, yeah, so what's your name again? Where are you from? And I was just like, you know who I am. And um, I just kind of, anyway, there was a Christmas party where we were going through the lines and we were shaking hands and he was trying to get me by really quickly. And I had my daughter with me and Michelle Obama looked at him 
and said, hold on a second, like pretty much stopped him, said, hold on a second. And she looked at me and put her hands on my shoulder and she said, Mia, is this the first time we're meeting? And I said, yes. And she said, I want you to know that I'm glad you're here. We need women on both sides of the aisle. And she said, we need black women on both sides of the aisle. And she said, so the only thing I'm going to ask you, set the bar high, set the bar high and looked at her husband, like dare her, dare, dare, like dare you to say something else. Like looked at her, looked at him like, this is, anyway, it was just quite interesting. And uh, my daughter, she took the time to give my daughter a hug and say, "Um, you set the bar high too. And um, we walked off. Now, when I say that, good and bad, I think that we need women on both sides of the aisle because I think that that's more reflective of what society looks like. When we're talking about issues in terms of um, pro-life, pro-choice issues, when it comes to healthcare, you know, we're not just, it's not, it's not just one healthcare we're talking about. We're talking about chi- children's healthcare, mine, yours, they're all different. And so the more voices we have that are diverse, the better it is. Even the economy, women run the economy. We should have that, those policies reflective on both sides of the aisle. You know, when somebody, it's, even though I was a member of Congress, I was still the one that was navigating my kids' sports. Thank goodness for modern technology, but I was navigating their sports, their doctor's appointments, their school, school work, making sure that Elisa had the things that she needed to get to to get to um, practice. I mean, I was still navigating that. So much so my husband called me once and said, Mia, do you know where the number for the pizza place that the kids really like? I'm like across the country and he's calling me for the number um, for the police, uh, for the uh, pizza place that the kids like. So, I mean, that's what I mean by women run the economy. I'm gonna keep these as short as possible, I'm sorry, but we have to have people on both sides of the aisle. Um, in order to get a better women, in order to get a better um, view or mirror what society looks like, American society. Yeah, so to follow up on that question, based on your experience as a legislator and your background as a woman of color, are there any policies that you believe could aid our nation in our current search for racial unity? Well, are there policies for racial unity? I don't know if policies is really the answer. I think that um, I think that the thing that would help in terms of specific things like police brutality, um, being a mayor and being a city council member, I saw the importance of community policing. And I think that we would make uh, bigger strides, not from the federal level, but actually from the local level. I believe that the best solutions um, are found at the most local level. And what, what I mean by that is that when you have people that are, communi- that are policing a community that doesn't look like the community, that is not somehow integrated with that community on a personal level, it creates some animosity. Um, and I think that the way to fix that is by having young Black men and women in Black communities become police officers in their communities. So they become role models. Um, I think that that's, even in Saratoga Springs, I wanted, instead of us being policed by the county, 
or by the state, I created my own personal Saratoga Springs policing community. Um, when I mean personal, I mean personal to our residents so that the police were lived here. They had barbecues. Your neighbor was a police officer. They went to church with each other. So there was an accountability. There was a, oh, do you need help? Um, you're, you're, you've got flat tires on the side of the road. Who's more likely to stop and help you if not a neighbor? Who's more likely to actually um, look at Tommy and say, Tommy, you should be doing better, you know, instead of, you know, seeing these kids that are hanging out. Hey, do you want me to call your mom? That's what that looks like. Community policing um, would, would really do a lot to change some of these behaviors because when you actually care about people, when you say, how would I want my, my daughter, my son, my wife to be treated if they were stopped by a police officer, all of a sudden that changes. And, um, and I think that that's how we really start to address the problem. My opinion, which I think is right. Yeah, we love that answer. And looking back at your career in politics, how do you think the Republican Party has shifted since you were first elected? Well, um, one of the things that I think that I, 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 I'm fighting very hard is encouraging people not to leave their party because of a person. I think it's important. The policies, the platform, the principles haven't changed. And people will let you down one way or the other. If you think about it, um, I'm sure uh, it, it, the Democrat party doesn't look at one person that leads their party. Um, I know there are people that would say, okay, there, there are some members that are way too on the fringe. There are a lot of Democrat members that don't want to defund police, for instance, um, that the policies have changed or they feel like somebody, what I'm trying to say is people will always let you down. What doesn't let you down is that written platform and those principles. I believe that free markets have taken, I know that free markets have taken more people out of poverty than any other economic system in the history of the world. I know that. And so I'm going to do everything I can to continue to promote that platform. And when somebody lets me down or goes outside of that platform, I don't leave because of them. I stay in it and hold them accountable to it. And so I, I would hope and I'm trying to do everything I can to say, look, Republicans, what you need to do is not stand behind a person, but you stand behind a set of principles and you stand behind a platform. And I would say that to everyone. I would say that to um, anybody from all the way from the left to the right. If there's something you believe in, don't abandon that belief because somebody has shifted it for you. You stay there. And when you stand and, and you're on a firm foundation, then um, then you don't leave that area vacant. Yeah, that's a wonderful encouragement. Uh, sort of relating that to current situations, uh, what is your opinion, just your thoughts or maybe your predictions on the current congressional race for your old seat in Utah's 4th District? Um, well, I'm going to be quite frank about it. And um, there's several things that have to change. I think that there's, a, there's this old adage that it's not who votes that counts, it's who counts the votes. And um, Utah County, the area that I, was, that, I am, that I was really strong in, the county clerk, I mean, took a day off on election day. Um, there weren't enough booths. There were about four to five hour 
long um, waits, whereas Salt Lake County, um, they move things through very quickly. And the campaign was not, much like you see the presidential campaign, it's not about policy. It was about um, personality and not even personality. It was, if you can't find something wrong, then you make it up. And so there are so many myths, truths out there that you're just um, trying to fight. And it, it just, it takes away from what you can do from people. And unfortunately, I see the same thing. This is nothing about what you're for, but it's already very ugly and about bankruptcies and lies. And um, it's not about what people can add to the table. It's incredibly negative. And um, that's unfortunate. So um, most of the time, it's whoever has the most money, right? And can get a message out there. I think it's gonna be incredibly close. Um, and it's gonna be pretty dirty. So to wrap up, just one last question. Uh, if you had any advice for students that were interested in a career in politics or wanted to follow in your footsteps, what would be kind of the most simple advice you could give them? I would say there is dream versus reality. Um, the first thing, okay, so let's talk about the dream versus the reality. There's all of the thing, there are all of the things that you want to accomplish. There are all of the things that you want to do. Um, and you have these dreams of just getting through and getting it done. But there's also this reality that you have to deal with, which is like I talked about leadership. I talked about um, this, power, this power struggle in Washington, which in many ways doesn't get anything done. I mean, you look at the stimulus bill, right? Um, if it doesn't have everything that one side wants or if the other side, you don't get anything done because people allow perfect to be the enemy of a really good win. Um, so you have to understand the realities and try and navigate within those realities. I would also say to get comfortable in uncomfortable situations. Leaders go into uncomfortable places. Uh, more Republicans need to do what I did, go into the inner cities of Baltimore, go into places where people may not like you, but they need your support. They need um, to know that you see them, that you understand what they're going through. Um, that you care about them. And I think that Republicans have a hard time doing that and they really should because I think that the policies are, are good. Um, and the last thing I would say is stand up, make your voice heard, make sure that you are speaking out because if you don't, someone inferior to you will do it for you. What I mean by that, someone who doesn't have the same ideas, doesn't have the same thoughts, doesn't know you who is less qualified to speak for you, will do it for you. So now we're going to move to our last section, which is the lightning round. So quick questions and quick answers okay. are a little more fun. So the first question is, if you could go to dinner with any historical figure, who would it be? Ronald Reagan. <laughs> I think he'd be hilarious. And um, yes. Ronald Reagan. All right. And next question. What's the most impactful book that you've read? Ooh, there are a lot. Um, oh, gosh. Most impactful. Probably Daniel's, Daniel Pink's A Whole New Mind. We'll have to check it out. All right. Last question. 
What's been your favorite quarantine hobby or pastime? Making artisan bread. And I've gotten really good at it. Like really good at it. It's like nice and crunchy on the outside and super soft on the inside. Like when you push it down, it makes that crackling sound. And then you open it up and it's all nice and gooey on the inside. And I have my own sourdough starter. And I've also have a, um, a sourdough starter that, um, is pretty old. I think it's like 40 years old, um, from a pioneer that came across the plains and started a sourdough. So I have, and anyway, they're delicious. That's incredible. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Representative. Thank you. So nice to meet both of you. Really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Fly in the Wall. If you want to hear more from Mia, make sure you register for her geopolitics discussion group, Inside the Beltway, on Tuesdays from 4 to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time over Zoom. Find all of her information in the geopolitics newsletter or Google geopolitics discussion group. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you follow us on social media at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And as always, you can email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. See you next week.